Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that premiered in April of 2011, it's an episode we call Education. Yeah, you know what time it is, don't you? I believe I do. <laughs> That's right. It's story time, motherfuckers! Yeah, it's R to the ISK! What, what you say? Big Latin, it's O say of the fucking May 8th grade! Hosted by a ginger whose last name is a girl's name! Whoa, you feel that? Yo, I think the world rocks came. hard like a quarry, rude like Hugh Laurie, shit that's dark and gothic like Edward Dory, Ritz ride your lorry, Canadians say you're sorry, yeah, it's time for some motherfucking stories! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was our dear friend Dan Rosen up top, making the excellent point that it is time for some motherfucking stories, and I do mean motherfucking. What is the episode about, Kevin? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked, Peculiar Singing Boy, because the episode is about education. Because the stories on today's episode come from our very first college shows at Brown University. We had an awesome time this past week doing these shows. We had a pretty brilliant idea. We included faculty members and students to tell stories at the shows. They were amazing. And we're going to start with Connie Crawford. She teaches uh, in the theater department at Brown. Connie was just a joy to get to know and to work with. And we call her story The Heavies. Okay, so my high school education was really a study in extremes. It was really chaotic, personally and pedagogically. I went to three radically different high schools. I started out in a big public high school where most of the learning happened in the bathrooms. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of smoking, and the classes were mind-numbingly boring except for my Latin class, which I loved. I just loved my Latin class. So when they announced, okay, we're not going to have Latin anymore, nobody likes Latin. You know, I said, oh my God. So I go to my mother and I say, mom, I need academic rigor. I'm thirsting for knowledge. And she was great. She would always support me making my own choices. So off I go to the elite boarding school, the private, academically rigorous prep school. And it was, I mean, the Latin class was fantastic. It was just great. But there was this bizarre subculture there of eating disorders. And the day I arrived to my dorm, this beautiful ivy-covered dorm, they're bringing this girl out on a stretcher. And she was emaciated. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anorexia. But very soon I was joining the ladies in the bathroom and we were all being taught how to induce vomiting. And it became binging and purging. That's what you did to relieve stress. And you know, I knew enough, I was struggling, but I knew enough to know this isn't right. There's gotta be a better way. So I, I went to my mother and I said, Mom, I said, fuck academic rigor, I need like help. And she said, okay, okay, Connie, what do you want to, you know, what are you thinking about now? And I said, I think I need, you know, emotional support. So she goes, okay, well, let's try the groovy alternative school. So I, we head up to this, the open community school, it was called. And it was one of these, you know, no, you didn't have to go to classes, no grades. 
out in the country. And I go up to interview, <clears throat> and I see, you know, the students are all out. And this is the mid-70s. And I see this gorgeous guy. He's one of the students. And he's wearing his hip huggers and his jeans. And he's got, like, those sloping shoulders and that kind of turtle muscle stomach thing going on. <laughs> and long, brown, curly hair. And in that instant, I fell completely in love with Peter Lasagna. <laughs> and to my surprise, he totally loved me back. It was this moment of long brown hair love, you know? It was like, oh my God. So I went home and I packed my bags and I come running back to the open community school and I'm matriculated and I move into the dorm and Peter Lasagna no longer loves me. And I realize, oh my God, now I'm here. And I became one of the many who had unrequited love from Peter Lasagna. And when I say many, I, there really weren't that many because this school was a kindergarten to 12th grade, but there were 50 kids in the whole school. So I was in a class of two. The class behind me was my friend Jeannie, and she was the only person in her class. And, you know, we were a family, an open community. And this school was run by a married couple, Bobby and Barbara. And Barbara was a kind of beautiful, but a little emotionally cold, I think she was like German. And <laughs> Bob, Bobby was this emotionally effusive guy. He was six foot five and really thin and big glasses and like white man's fro and you know and he chain smoked now cigarettes which were these zero tar cigarettes so you had to really like suck on them to get any kind of flavor so he was always like passionately sucking on cigarettes and emoting you know and we just love Bobby man we just wanted Bobby to be our father and our our teacher and our lover and uh, and he sort of was our therapist which was really fucked because <laughs> Bobby, Bobby, every Thursday night, I don't even think he had a degree, but remember, this is mid-70s. Every Thursday night, we had a session called Heavies. <laughs> and Heavies was all the older kids would come to Bobby's living room and we'd talk about our problems. And Bobby would sit at the end of the uh, couch and he would chain smoke the cigarettes, you know. And then instead of putting them out in an ashtray, he would turn them on their end and stand the filters on the edge of the bookcase. And so by the end of the night, there would be like rows, these little sentinel rows of these white filters. And sitting next to Bobby on his right every night was the anointed son, the beautiful Peter Lasagna. <laughs> And the rest of us were just sprawled around. And I mean, we were all rich kids from pretty troubled homes. I remember this one girl, and she was talking about, she'd go home on the weekends, and her mother was withdrawing from heroin. And she would nurse her mother alone in an apartment in New York. Bobby would, you know, would hear these stories, and he'd just go, yeah. Yeah, that's heavy. <laughs> those little fucking filters up and like just use a ashtray and then he'd go who's next and we were all like me Bobby me I want to expose my family secrets to you and uh, but I didn't quite realize how weird it was uh, a couple other things happened one was this this new student came in her name was Annabeth and Annabeth was a bitch and I had good reason to hate Annabeth to this day. And she did shit like this, not just to me, but everybody. So again, troubled rich kids, man. My family, we were really struggling. And I had a member of the family who was suicidally depressed. And so we'd get these horrible phone calls saying, he just drank a bottle of iodine and you gotta come to the hospital. And you know, we were like, oh, crisis to crisis. You know, I mean, some of you I'm sure have been through this kind of stuff and you really are on the edge. And so this girl, Annabeth, comes to me at school and she goes, Connie, I'm really depressed. And I just ate a bottle of aspirin and I feel like, uh, and she kind of goes to pass out. So I'm immediately, emergency, Bobby, Barbara, help, you know, Annabeth, you know, and we go and the fucking bitch was faking. Complete fake. She wasn't even sad, you know. <laughs> 
So I hate Annabeth, all right? And she would do shit like this to everybody, but only two members, two of the other students decided they were gonna get Annabeth. So Annabeth was the only, uh, you know, image conscious in the 70s, you know, no, fuck image, right? And so she used a tooth whitener, and this product was called Pearl Drops. And Pearl Drops came in a little bottle and you'd squeeze two little drops out onto your toothbrush and you'd brush your teeth. And so this guy, Barnaby, and a friend of his, they jerked off into her Pearl Drops. <laughs> and Annabeth brushed her teeth for a week. And we all thought this was sweet vengeance. And then Annabeth found out and the adults found out and then everything exploded and Bobby called a big school meeting and he lambastes Barnaby and this other guy and he throws them out, just throw out. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second, I thought this was an open community. What about what this bitch has done? You know, nobody's ever talked about her behavior. I mean, yeah, pretty bad, right? But open community, and it's the 70s, you know, come on. And so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so I start thinking, you know, this was really weird. I think this could have been handled better. They should have been off, because you know, Barnaby was really, he had a really bad relationship with his father. They were very estranged. Barnaby, was also really into eating acid. He took a lot of acid, and he was really good at it. He was one of these people who was always better on acid than not, you know? And anyway, his father was a famous TV person. And Barnaby told me once that his father was yelling at him about something, and Barnaby was tripping, and he hallucinated a TV frame around his father's head. And so he's sitting there, as his father's yelling, he's reaching out, trying to turn it off, or change the channel, but the talking head won't shut up. And, uh, but anyway, so then there was another event that happened, which was they came to us one morning and they said, okay, we have an pr outdoor project. And so they gave all of us older kids shovels and we went and we dug a ditch. Now, open community schools, you do this kind of stuff, you know? And so we're digging a ditch and we dig it really deep down to this big pipe. And at the end of the day, we're all covered with mud where we feel pretty good, you know? And then they call a meeting, a big school meeting, and Barbara says, well, what we didn't tell you is that um, uh, you were digging the sewer line and you've all been exposed to high levels of bacteria and you'll all have to take 20 minute chlorinated baths. And there's only one tub in the whole school. So one by one, each one of us kids had to sit in the chlorine water with Barbara right by our side for 20 minutes. And you're just getting whiter by the second and there are kids outside. And at the end of this strange evening, we were all kind of properly sterilized. And that's when I went, oh fuck, this place is really bad. I'm like, and I got nowhere else to go. Public school, no, you know, prep school, no. I just gotta graduate, just get me out of here. And I was, you know, in my senior year, and I had to get through biology class to graduate and get out of this place. And biology class was tough because it was the one class that Bobby taught. And the year I took it, he hired the beautiful Peter Lasagna to be his assistant. So I had to be taught by my beloved. And that was okay, you know, I'm like, all right, I'll get by, I'll get by. And there was another girl, Jeannie, and she and I were like, she loved Peter even more than me, because she'd been in this school since she was 10, and she was 17. And Jeannie, man, she had a rough ride. She was in a car accident with her mother when she was six years old, and her mother was killed, and Jeannie's mouth was all screwed up. And then years later, her brother hanged himself in a closet in their house. And so this place was her home. And we were both like, okay, we love Peter, and we'll get through biology. Until the day they said to us, okay, so now we're gonna pith a frog. Now, I don't know if any of you have pithed a frog, but uh, what you do is you take a live frog, you bend its neck, you take a long needle, and you stick it into the frog's brain cavity, and you scramble the brains so that it becomes brain dead, and you can turn it over, it's still alive, and you can cut it open and see its little heartbeat, and see biology at work. And, it, and, and they, they told me I had to do this, and I'm like, no fucking way am I gonna do what? No! And they said, well, you have to or you won't graduate. And I said, oh, fuck, fuck, 
fuck, you know? So they give me the frog and I bend its neck and I take the needle and I stick it in and I miss the fucking brain. And so now it's like coming in its eye and it's squirming and I'm screaming. I'm like, fuck, no, fuck. And they said, they said, you gotta do it or you're gonna graduate. Do it again, do it again, you're gonna graduate. So I stick it in again and I miss that again. And it's like getting worse and the frog's just awful and I'm screaming and at this point I'm almost hysterical and they said, do it again, do it again, you know? And I stick it in again and I miss again and I I finally just said, kill the frog, just kill the fucking frog, you know? And so they give it like ether and then the frog's dead. And then I'm like, fuck this, I'm out of biology, fuck it. So I walk away, I'm like, non-compulsory classes, yes, you bet, motherfuckers, I'm not coming back. And Jeannie and I didn't go for months for the rest of the year. And then at the end of the school year, Bobby calls a special school meeting and he tears into Jeannie and me for not going to biology in front of the whole school. And we were absolutely devastated, just devastated. And thankfully I was leaving the next day and um, he comes up to me and he grabs me and he hugs me and he leans in and he goes, I'm so sorry. And I just pushed him away. And I'm just like, I'm going to college. And thankfully, college, I went to Vassar, and it was just great. It was like everything I was looking for in high school. I was academically t- you know, really good, and I had made great friends. And everything was beautiful. And they kept asking me at Vassar, they kept saying, oh, Connie, we don't have your high school transcript. (laughs) And I'd say, well, you know, good luck getting it. You know, hippies, what do you, you know. And the school had closed the year after I graduated. And uh, so I'm like, okay, good luck. And they never got it. And um, to this day, I don't even know if I graduated high school. (laughs) Thank you. Boys and girls, learning to read is a great deal of fun. If you want to become a good reader, there are three things you should learn. First, you must learn to listen carefully so that you're able to hear the different songs that make our words. Second, you should learn to speak correctly so that you're able to make these different sounds with your voice. Uh, the sound is for furniture and the scarf cushions with the mats and shack by cover. Third, you should learn to look carefully. What? You're going the wrong way! So that you are able quickly to tell the differences between our many, many printed words. You're going to kill somebody! This is why it is important that you learn to listen carefully and look carefully. Remember, listen carefully, speak carefully, and look carefully.
This is Risk. A collage there by our associate Jeff Barr, who's been doing some digging around at the garage sales and thrift stores for the weird shit. As well as uh, Wax Audio with a mashup of uh, the brothers Gibb and Floyd. Or as my mother calls the band, Pink and Floyd. <laughs> Our next story comes to us from the incredible Deke Neighbors. Deke is an associate professor of English at Brown. And without a doubt, he is one of the biggest characters we have met in the time that we've been doing the show. George is the name of Deke's story, and here it is now. Okay. Unfortunately... The yeah, um, object of ridicule in my story is largely me, um, which is, um, makes it slightly different from the earlier ones, but um, I hope it will work okay. Um, um, about 18 months ago, something that I had spent more or less my whole adult life dreading happened to me. Um, I became a father. My wife, Genia, and I had a son named George. Um, there was nothing noble about my dreading fatherhood. It wasn't that I thought it would be spiritually overwhelming or that I felt unprepared for the duties, though I felt unprepared for the duties and it was, in fact, unprepared for the duties. That wasn't really what bothered me or what I worried about. What I dreaded about fatherhood is that I thought it would suck, that it would be boring. <laughs> that children, in fact, aren't worth the effort. Um, I'd like to say that I'm a former child hater now that I'm a parent, but there's really nothing particularly former about it. They're boring. They don't know anything. They have nothing to say. They spend most of their time doing boring things, like preschool. It's really hard for me to see how you could feel anything other than resentment toward a creature that demands so much, diaper changes, and cannot offer even a good conversation in return. Plus, it seems to me that children produce very deeply noxious effects in the world at large. Um, Jeannie and I spent the first four or five years of our marriage, in fact, all of our marriage prior to George's birth, watching our friends one by one succumb to the tedium of parenthood. Children seem to come equipped with a remarkable ability to make their parents lose all perspective in life. <laughs> to lose perspective in particular um, on the fact that their children are not the most interesting things in the world. <laughs> you are in fact right this minute witnessing an instance of this problem as I stand in front of you and tell a story about my fucking kid as if you care. <laughs> It was precisely to avoid ever being in this situation that I spent the first five years of my marriage fighting the possibility of pregnancy. Unfortunately, my marriage being what it is, my wife's vision of our having a child ultimately prevailed over my vision of our avoiding children altogether. And so we set about the task of producing children. Many couples start this before five years into the cycle, but that was the way it worked for us. Um, it turns out that if you start trying to have a child when you're in your early 40s, you find that the process is quite hard. Generally speaking, it seems as though the process is more attractive than the result. This is why there's a problem of unwanted pregnancies in the world. But when you, in fact, want one, it turns out to be more difficult than you might expect. In our early 40s, at least, it was more difficult than we expected. We spent about a year trying somehow to magically time the intimate rhythms of our life with some complicated calendrical system so that all bodily fluids would be exactly the right temperature. <laughs> this did not result in conception. It instead resulted in the radical evacuation of intimacy from the intimate rhythms of our lives. The evacuation was so radical that we decided to do it all together to evacuate it completely and go through the process of in vitro fertilization, where intimacy is absolutely irrelevant. In fact, my contribution to my son's conception is easily the least erotic moment that I've experienced in my life. 
it took place in a fertility clinic in Manhattan on a Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The fertility clinic was closed on Saturdays. So after I arrived, I had to wait for a young nurse in her early 30s to arrive at the clinic and open it for me so that I could, as the clinic euphemistically put it, produce. <laughs> the nurse showed up with her boyfriend. And the three of us happily marched into the clinic. She gave me a small bottle and pointed my way into a little cubicle which had no windows, but did have several glossy magazines. The magazines, I suspect, were there to stimulate me um, in the effort to produce. But instead, all they did was stimulate my imagination to notice that many people had produced there before. <laughs> so whatever erotic appeal the various images might have had was more than counterbalanced by my coupling them with images of older, balding, people like myself responding to the images. It is amazing to me that I was able to leave that room ever with a less than empty bottle. And amazing to me still that I managed somehow not to faint in embarrassment when I walked out and presented it to the nurse with her boyfriend there looking at me. I think in my memory he winks, but I doubt he did that in fact when it happened. From such inauspicious origins came my son nine months later, at five in the morning. Inconsiderate time, I think, to be born. <laughs> robbing both his mother and me of a full night of sleep. <laughs> it's unseemly to do what I'm about to do. It's unseemly for a man to complain in any way about the process of labor. Deeply unseemly. It's, 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 it's unthinkable. We don't go through pregnancy. We don't go through labor. We just sort of stand on the side and offer support. And since the process of delivering a child happens before the process of labor ends, for our doing nothing, we are rewarded with the sort of first hold, the first hug of the child, as the afterbirth placenta part of pregnancy is unfolding over in the corner of the room. We get to bounce with the little new nipper and talk to him. For many people, I think this is a joyous moment. But for me, it was a deeply traumatic moment. <laughs> what do you say to someone who has just gone through labor? What do you say to that person? This is probably the only time a child would ever have an interesting experience, yet he can't possibly say anything to you about it. <laughs> I, I sat and stammered for a couple minutes, and then I do what I think many people do in this circumstance, which is I resorted to pure cliche. <clears throat> I used the world's most hackneyed phrases, and I gave the baby what amounted more or less to a pep talk. <laughs> I said something like, George, your birth is a dream come true for your mother and me. George, we will do everything in our power to show you the pleasures of life and we will do everything in our power to teach you how to enjoy them. The world is not filled simply with pleasures, though, and we will do everything in our power to shield you from its sorrows. And because we cannot shield you from all of its sorrows, we will do everything in our power to teach you how to manage and handle those sorrows that you will experience in heaven. We, George, hope to be as much of a blessing to your life as you are to ours. So forth and so on. <laughs> the words sound cliched now. They sounded cliched to me as I said them. In fact, one of my first thoughts is that my son's first response to me is to think that I'm a cheese log. That he's thinking, in fact, Dad, can't you come up with something better than this? Do you have to give me such boring crap? <laughs> But it was all I could think to say, because I did not in any way understand George, this little thing, to be any other, anything other than just a baby. It was impossible for me to imagine what it would be like to have a personal relationship to him. He was, in fact, nothing but a bundle of needs, as I understood it. <laughs> and in fact, he remained a bundle of needs the whole day, so far as I was concerned. He needed to be photographed. 
He needed to be discussed to relatives. He needed to be bounced on the knee, so forth and so on. So that at the end of the day, when a nurse came and suggested to Genia and I that Genia needed, Genia and me, I should say, I'm an English professor, Genia and me, <laughs> that Genia should spend the night by herself because we were tired, and that George should spend the night in the nursery in the hospital, and that I should go home. That seemed like a great idea. And it seemed like an even greater idea when she wheeled George out of our room in, a, in, a, in his little roller crib down to the hospital nursery. I thought, awesome. I am finally free of parenthood, at least for the remainder of the night. And I quite happily kissed Genia on the cheek and said, boy, isn't it weird that we're parents? Ha ha ha, finger crossed behind my back, and headed out, thinking about whether I had a full 12-pack or just eight or nine beers at home. <laughs> This looked like a bachelor night. But as I walked down the hallway to the hotel, I mean, to the hospital elevator, I stopped briefly. This is where things stop being in any way funny and just become deeply cheesy for the rest of my talk. Um, I stopped and looked through the window into the nursery. The nursery in this, in this particular hospital was huge. It had maybe 30 little baby cribs. And, you know, babies start off looking very much like babies. These babies were all wearing exactly the same hospital baby-issued clothing. It's, as it turns out, you don't tend to remember to bring your, you know, snazzy little cashmere jumper that your grandmother gives when you race off on, when your wife's water is breaking. So everybody's wearing the same clothes. And since it's, uh, there's a danger that babies will get jaundice early in life if they're not um, around ultraviolet light, Many of them are under um, ultraviolet lamps. So they're all wearing these very complicated <laughs> baby goggles. They all look as though they've gone incognito. <laughs> and the previous day, I could not have distinguished one of them from another. As I walked past this window thinking about the Knicks game I was about to watch and the beer I was about to have, I briefly looked through the window and my eyes were just riveted, immediately stuck on one of these children, which I knew beyond, the, as deeply as I've never known anything, I knew as deeply as I could ever know anything, that this was George. It was really deeply disturbing. It was something like having a heart, which was a new experience to me. <laughs> and unfortunately for me, this, when I saw George at this moment, George was crying. Or he wasn't, I mean, you couldn't see tears coming down, but he was like, making the gesticulations of misery. <laughs> and rather than thinking, serves you right for keeping me up last night, my heart instead melted. And I wanted more than anything I could imagine somehow to prevent him from suffering this misery, or somehow to teach him how to manage living through this misery, or somehow to introduce him to whatever pleasures he had managed to discover in his tiny little 24 hours of life. I went home that night eager to drink and watch the Knicks and then go to sleep, and instead I just basically sat up all night worrying, worrying that somehow I had not done enough to comfort George, so forth and so on. Um, prior to this night, I thought I had a really good idea of what a cliché was. Um, I, I wasn't certain that I always avoided a being a cliché, but I was pretty sure what they were. I thought they were moments where our language failed our imagination. There were moments where, in the face of the complexity and richness of life, we could only offer shop-worn, hackneyed phrases. But since I've decided that I had that almost exactly backward, the cliches don't happen when words fail imagination, but rather when imagination fails words. The little cheesy things I said to George upon his birth were absolutely cheesy. They were exactly the kind of shit you might read on a Hallmark card. But it turns out that they were also absolutely true and, at least from my perspective, absolutely meaningful. I began that little speech after I stammered for a while by saying to George, you, George, this is probably the first time I even called him by his name, George, you probably won't be able to understand this until you get older. What I didn't realize at the time I said that is that would be as true for me as it would be for him, and that I would only be able to learn this despite my sense that babies have nothing to offer, nothing to teach us, by way of his example. Thanks. Mm. 
My darling, what wonder have we right here? It's weird and it's wonderful, dear. An ankle, a near lobe, an elbow bone. It's weird how it wonderful grows. And it was only me and you. That made this three come out of two. My darling, what wonder have we right here? It's weird and it's wonderful, dear. Tumbling in Dublin, and next thing you know, a weird and a wonderful show. All tendons and rib cage and beating heart, a weird and a wonderful start. It was only me and you made this three come out of two. My darling, what wonder have we right here? It's weird and it's wonderful. It's weird, but mostly wonderful, dear. Thank you. The first game we will play is a sound game. You will like to play this game. In a minute, you will hear different sounds. When you hear a sound, I want you to point to the picture that makes the sound. Listen, here is the first sound. Are you pointing to the picture that could make that sound? That's right. That was the sound of an automobile honking its horn. Listen to the next sound. That was the sound of the girl dropping her drinking glass. We've all heard girls bark many times. All girls bark differently, but still they sound something alike. Listen. Of course, that was the gun being shot. Isn't this fun? Let us play some more games. Well, we heard from Colin Malloy from his album. Colin Malloy sings live. You can find out more at decembrist.com. Such a lovely song that I played the whole thing. And then we had more educational wackiness from our friend Jeff Barr. And <laughs> this is Gigi Allen's dick behind me now. I wouldn't have it anywhere else. <laughs> 
Next up is a very dear friend of mine going back to our days in the state. It was so great of Mr. Michael Ian Black to have come to Brown University to headline our first two college shows. I think you'll hear how psyched everyone was that we ended the evening with such a bang as this. This is something we call the Ring of Fire. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Brown. (laughs) Good night, Moon. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be hard to uh, compete with Deke. I have nothing particularly meaningful to offer to the evening's festivities. But uh, Deke reminded me of a time in my life, pre-children, I also have children. Uh, And I would agree with your assessment that they have very little to offer. (laughs) Mine are now 10 and almost eight, and still I'm waiting. (laughs) But before children, Before uh, that was really a thought in our heads, I entered marriage with uh, some trepidation, as, as, as you should. And to that point in my life, I had been, and uh, continue to be, fairly conservative in terms of my uh, uh, proclivities. Which is to say, I never uh, drank, literally never drank, never smoked cigarettes, never did drugs, never did anything like this. But then I got married. (laughs) And we went on our honeymoon. And we decided to go Uh, on our honeymoon to Amsterdam. (laughs) Which I know is, you know, that's a strange place to decide to go for your honeymoon. We went for the whores. (laughs) You know, they're there. (laughs) And for the Anne Frank house. So while we're online at JFK airport to to board our flight to Amsterdam, it's an overnight flight, and uh, we're flying coach because we're uh, poor, (laughs) and we get up to the counter, and the woman uh, at the KLM station is punching in the thing, and she looks up, and she goes, are you on your honeymoon? And I'm like, does it say that on the computer? How do you know that we're on our honeymoon? She goes, your rings, your rings are sparkly and bright, and they look brand new. And we say, you're very observant. We just got married. We're going on our honeymoon to Amsterdam. She goes, Anne Frank House? (laughs) She didn't say that. So we go, yeah, we're going on our honeymoon. And she goes, congratulations. And then, you know, she does her little thing and she hands us our tickets and we say thank you and then we look down and we realize she's upgraded us to first class. And oh, and we're like, wow, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. And she's like, have a good marriage, you know, have a good life, have a good marriage. I'm like, great. So I've always wondered. If you've ever seen the 747s, huge planes, there's like a little bubble on top of the plane where there's like a second story. And I always wondered, what's up there? Well, when you're in first class, you find out. 
turns out, uh, when you get up, up, up there, it, it, what's up there is magic. It's, it could not be cooler. It's just, it's just like a little uh, salon where there's just, you know, sofas and divans scattered about haphazardly and mink stoles everywhere and topless stewardesses going around giving you foot massages. It's just great up there. It's just, you know, you get your own chair and it goes back and then as soon as you get in, they come in and they give you a bag and it's filled with gifts. There's like little slippers that you can put on and an eye thing and then there's collectible earthenware. Which surprised the hell out of me that there would be Delft earthenware collectibles filled with liqueur. And they just give you. Thank you very much. Enjoy your earthenware. And the flight, honestly, could not have lasted. I mean, it could have gone on forever. I could still be up there and I would be happy. It was just, it, it was, it was, it was just a cocoon of marvelousness for, what, seven hours, and then it lands, and you're, and you're almost disappointed when you have to go, leave and go to Europe. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, Europe can't compare to this. And it didn't. I mean, it was fine. We had, it was lovely, and we, we, we went to, we were uh, swapping apartments with a couple, which is how we could afford the thing to Amsterdam. And they had this nice apartment uh, kind of overlooking this little canal, because Amsterdam is filled with canals. And uh, the first thing I do when I get to the apartment is we sort of put down our stuff, and then we're a little jet lagged. And I think to myself, you know, these are this is a Dutch couple that we're uh, renting from. I'll bet you anything there are topless pictures of the hostess because <laughs> they're Dutch. You know what I mean? It's just like it's gotta be. Go to the photo albums. There are. <laughs> Look at those for a little while. And I'm feeling like this is a really good honeymoon. And we're there for like a couple days. Going to, you know, little shoppies and eating little Dutch sandwiches and going to art museums. And, and there's something sort of gnawing at me. And we, go, we, we walk through the red light district, you know, which you know what that is. And it's, you know, it's, it, 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 it would rival uh, Deke's experience of least erotic place. <laughs> there's nothing erotic about, you know, just chicks in windows going. <laughs> it's not. It's not great. But it's gnawing at me because I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I, I should get high. Like, I should do that. So I say to my wife on like our last night there, I'm like, you know what we should do? We should get high. And she's cool. She's like, okay. She's really cool, you guys. And we just had this big Italian dinner, and I was like, take me to the place where you get high. I'm saying this to my wife, and like, she knows, but because she's gotten high before, she's an expert in my eyes. So she takes me to one of the coffee shops, which are in the red light districts, and that's what they call them in Amsterdam, where you get high. There's just these, you know, shitty little cafes. There are, you know, red walls and Bob Marley posters up and terrible music playing. And there's always uh, a passed out, unconscious American somewhere. <laughs> who could not handle his pot. Some sort of, you know, just douchebag guy who just can't get over the fact that there's pot there and he just ingests too much. That's the place we go, one of those places. And we get a space cake because I've never inhaled and I'm afraid to inhale things. I don't know, I just don't know how to do it. And you, you guys know, I mean, you, 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 that's all you do. They're just these brownies that are, you know, half chocolate, half lawn clippings, and you just choke it down. And they're horrible. They taste horrible. And I'm waiting for it to kick in. And waiting. And 20 minutes goes by, half an hour goes by, nothing is happening. And I say to my wife, do you feel anything? She's like, I don't know. She's like, be patient. I'm like, I'm being patient. Nothing's happening. Another 10 minutes goes by, I'm like, I don't think this is working. She's like, I feel okay. Well, I'm like, well, it's not working for me. 
what I think happened is that we just had this big dinner, and so all you know, the active ingredient in the pot, all the TMZ got absorbed <laughs> into my food, and it's not going to work. I'm like, go get a joint. And I'm making her do everything. And she's like, are you sure? Because we just had this face cake, and I think it's going to work. If you just give it, I'm like, just get the fucking thing. Because that's how I talk to her. And she goes, and she buys uh, a joint. And I'm like, you have to teach me how to inhale, because I've never smoked anything in my life. You have to teach me. And she's like, it's really easy. You just, and then you hold, and then you let it go. And I go, okay, and I go, and I hold. And then I, you know, cough uncontrollably for about three minutes. And I let it go. And she's like, how do you feel? I'm like, I don't feel anything. It's not working. She goes, it's, just try it again. I'm like, yeah, it's not working. And she's like, well, I'm a high. <laughs> I go, I'm not. It's not working. Pot doesn't work on me. <laughs> so what starts off as a joint like this, you know, it slowly gets smaller and smaller as I'm smoking it going, it's not working. <laughs> it's not working. It's not working. <laughs> and then she says something to me, you know, in regards to my inhalations, which is the first time she has said this to me in, during our marriage, but she will subsequently repeat it uh, every day right up until the present. At a certain point, she goes, you're not doing it right. <laughs> like, well, how the fuck else am I supposed to do this? I'm breathing, like I know how to breathe, like that's breathing. I'm like, it's not working. And then, all of a sudden, I hear somebody screaming. Like, really, like, screaming, like, murderous, like, he's, he's and, and he's just, like, sphere. And it's a woman, and she's screaming, he's dead, oh my God, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, oh my God, he's dying, he's dead. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then I realize, I'm unconscious. <laughs> The person screaming is my wife. I have now become that asshole American passed out in the front of the coffee shop because he could not handle his pot. And she's going, he's dying, he's dying. And I feel the little thin arms of the Dutch boy who works there sort of pick me up off the floor and put me back onto my stool. And my eyes kind of open a little bit. And my wife goes, is he going to die? Is he going to die? And the guy goes, nobody ever died from pot. <laughs> and then he disappeared in a puff of smoke. <laughs> and I say to my wife, what happened? And she goes, you were yelling that it wasn't working. It wasn't working. It wasn't working, and then your head hit the table, and you fell onto the floor. And I said, that doesn't sound good. She's like, it wasn't. So we agree to leave, and we get up, and we walk out, and we walk back to uh, the apartment where we're staying, except that she's walking, and I am walking like a panda bear. <laughs> because I have now become a panda bear. <laughs> which is a surprise to both of us. <laughs> but that's what it is. I'm a panda bear. And, you know, it sounds cute and whatever until you realize like it's late at night and even like during business hours like you know you get the munchies when you when you ingest this stuff and when you think you're a panda bear it's like really complicated because you cannot find bamboo <laughs> in Amsterdam that 
time of night. So we make it back to our apartment and I climb the stairs as a panda bear would and get into bed as a panda bear would and my wife tucks me in. And then I wake up like eight hours later and I am still a panda bear. And I say to her, how long is this gonna last? And she says, it'll stop soon. And it doesn't. It goes on for almost the whole day and we have to go to the airport because it's time to return to America now. Changed people. And we go, and we're haggard, and I am still semi-panda, and we walk up to the uh, KLM people, and I say, show them your ring. (laughs) Just hold up your hand and show them your ring. And we kind of walk up like this. (laughs) And I'm like, you just kiss me. She's like, I don't want to. I'm like, I don't want to kiss you either. Just kiss me. Pretend that we're still in love. (laughs) We're haggard and tired. And and we've got up to the thing and the woman is typing at the thing. And she looks up, and she goes, you know, going back to New York? I'm like, yeah. And she looks back down, and I say, we were just on our honeymoon. <laughs> and she goes, uh-huh. <coughs> it was great. Yeah. Saw the Anne Frank house. <laughs> she goes, congratulations. She hands us the thing, and we look at it, and we are in coach. And we get onto the airplane. And the seats now in coach are much smaller than they would have been had we never been in first class. (laughs) They are infinitely small. And the seats in front of us are infinitely close. And we are infinitely tired and infinitely no longer in love. (laughs) Because of this long evening that we just had. And my wife says, I don't think I can do this. And I don't know in that moment if she means sit in coach for eight hours or the marriage. (laughs) And I swear to you, a Russian women's basketball team sits all around us. I swear to you, that's who they were. I'm... I'm not, they're the biggest people, male or female, I have ever seen. And they are Russian, and they play basketball. And there's a stereotype about Russians that all they do is drink. I am here to report to you tonight that that stereotype is absolutely true. And it was the most awful eight hours of my life. And I thought to myself, having survived that, and having survived this long, infinite evening of just tripping out of my mind on pod, (laughs) and being exhausted, and coming back to our shitty New York apartment, and thinking to myself, if we can survive this, we can survive anything. And we landed at JFK and we got off and, and feeling pretty good and feeling like, my God, we are, we are, we survived this and we're starting to laugh about it and we're, we can survive anything. And this goes back to Deke because uh, a couple years later we had children and that was so much worse. <laughs> Thank you guys very much. If you want.
That's all she wrote for today, folks. Uh, if you are a college student and you would like us to come to your school, just send an email to tour at risk-show.com. In the subject line, put I want to see risk at and then fill in the blank with the name of your school. This is Pablo behind me with a song called Learn a Lesson. And having said all that, all that remains to be said is, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. This boy's name is Dick. Look at the next picture and see what Dick is doing with his package. Wow, look at him go. His dog is having fun, too. Isn't that funny, the way his dog is trying to kiss his dick? It's four times as big as me. The little round balls are on the top and bottom. Be careful with those scissors, Dick. <laughs> <laughs>